Good morning. It's great to see you on this holiday weekend. I didn't know if it was going to just be, you know, me and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit here, but you're here, so praise God for that. And uh, we're going to magnify Jesus today. Is that okay? Nudge the person next to you and say, it's all about Jesus. Just do that. It is. It's all about Him. We're going to magnify Him not like a micro- microscope that makes small things look bigger, but like a telescope that makes huge things look more as they really are. We're going to go up the mountain today. Are you ready for that? We're going on an expedition. We're going to go high. We're going to reach the highest peak and catch a breathtaking glimpse of one of the most glorious sights in all of creation. So I hope you're ready for that. That's where we're going. Let me pray for us. Lord, Uh, Give me the words to magnify Jesus Christ the way he ought to be magnified. Enlarge our view of Jesus. May we see him as bigger. For your glory and by your power, I pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And as you know, we are making our way carefully more deeper into this New Testament book of Colossians. Last weekend, we looked at chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. How many of you were here last weekend? All right. And we saw that it was a prayer, right? Paul actually wrote out his prayer for the believers who lived in Colossae and sent it to them. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a deeply spiritual prayer. Prayer and a prayer in which he asked God, you might recall this, to fill them with the knowledge of his will. And then the rest of the prayer, he basically lays out what God's will is for his people. But along about verse 13 in this prayer, the, the, the focus of the prayer shifts. And I don't know if you saw that, so let's briefly look at it again. I'll start in verse 11. Right in the middle of the prayer. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now, do you see it? Did you you, you see the shift that took place right in the middle of that prayer? Paul stopped asking God for things and started to praise God, didn't he? He started to revel in all the awesome things that God has done for his people in Christ. So prayer began to morph into worship. Petitions started to give way to praise. And then it just kind of flows seamlessly into what is perhaps the most stunning description of Jesus Christ contained in all of Scripture. Now, I'm starting an email collection of emails from some of you who are writing me saying, Pastor Steve, last week when you were talking about Jesus, I I wanted to shout, but I didn't because I was in church. I'm thinking, you know, go ahead. Go ahead and shout. If, if, If something resonates deeply in your heart, just acknowledge that. Say amen or shout and it'll encourage the people around you And it'll fuel me up too, and I'll preach better. So it's fine. Do that. It's okay. Don't don't hold back. (laughs) Well, here we find ourselves in chapter chapter one, verses fifteen through nineteen, and it's here that Paul reaches 
heights of expression in praise of Jesus that rival anything else found in the entire Bible. In fact, many Bible scholars see in this section actually the structure of a hymn, a song, a song of praise with lyrics that focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let me read it for you. And really, this is Christology 101, okay? Or maybe 250, or maybe 495, or all the above. Listen, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? What a magnificent passage. I said a couple of weeks ago that Paul makes colossal statements in Colossians about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to the first of those colossal statements. Paul makes huge, sweeping statements about Jesus Christ in this section about his identity and about the vast scope of his authority and his power. He paints a marvelous picture of Jesus Christ as the one who towers over the universe and everything in it. So I'm going to say this to you today. It's not meant as a rebuke. It's just a statement of fact. Your Jesus is too small. My Jesus is too small. My view, my vision of Jesus is too puny. It doesn't do him justice And neither does yours. We're talking in this series about allowing Jesus to be first in our hearts, first in our lives, Jesus first. But what we're going to see today is that the reason that Jesus is often not first in our hearts is because our vision of him is too puny. It's too small. We need a bigger view of Jesus. And that's our preeminence principle for this weekend. Putting Jesus first is fueled and sustained by an enlarged view of Jesus Christ. So I've been praying for you all week that God would just expand your view and vision of who he is. The truth is, you'll only be as Christ-centered as your view of Christ allows him to be in your life. Well, down through the centuries, there have always been those who would want to make Jesus look smaller, who would want to diminish Jesus Christ. Even in 60 AD, when this letter was written, A mere 30 years after Jesus was here walking the earth, this was already happening. Scholars tell us that this Colossian church was being influenced by some teachers who were trying to infiltrate that church and introduce a particular teaching about Jesus, namely that Jesus was something less than God. Their whole belief system was an early form of what is often referred to as Gnosticism. So would you say that with me? Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And these Gnostics taught a variety of things, including the belief that matter, the material world, is inherently evil, and that the immaterial world, the spirit world, is inherently good, the only good in the world. And so when it came to their view of Jesus, they just couldn't bring themselves to believe that he was God's son because he had a 
body, a material body. And so they taught that Jesus was just one of many beings or many emanations that was created by and flowed out of God. And because Jesus did have a body, in their minds, he ranked really in the lower tier of created beings, a few notches down from the angels. And so these Gnostics were basically peddling a smaller Jesus, a less impressive version of Jesus Christ. You know, the human tendency to diminish Jesus hasn't really waned much through the centuries, has it? Even in our day, the Mormon version of Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness version of Jesus, the Da Vinci Code Jesus, are modern-day examples of this same kind of reductionism, reducing Jesus, making him look smaller. But if the Bible is your truth source... If you get your truth from the Bible, then you have no further to look than this passage right here in Colossians to find a contrasting vision of Jesus. Let's dive in deep and see how the Apostle Paul viewed Jesus Christ. I see at least five traits of the real Jesus in this section. And as you know, there's a study outline in your worship folder. You can pull that out and follow with us. Number one, the first contention of Paul is this, that Jesus was and is no less than God himself. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You can't get much clearer than that, can you? These two statements form the bookends of this section, and they say the same thing in different ways. Jesus is God. No less than God. Now, after one of the celebrations last weekend, somebody came up to me and said, so where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? Well, right here for starters. But we need to understand that Paul wasn't claiming anything for Jesus that Jesus hadn't already claimed for himself. On many occasions, it's recorded that Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. I came down from heaven. I existed before I was born in the manger in Bethlehem. On one occasion, he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And he said, I and the Father are one. There was a particular occasion where he was in the middle of a confrontation with the religious leaders, as happened a lot. And he stunned them by saying, Before Abraham was, I am. Next verse says, they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They knew what Jesus was claiming. They knew it better than the modern day skeptics and religious groups who contend that Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh my. John 5.18 says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus never denied that. In fact, he willingly received worship as God, including the worship of doubting Thomas. You remember this story? After Thomas had seen the risen Jesus and the the nail piercings in his hands and feet, the, the The wound in his side, it says, Thomas fell to the ground in worship and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't correct him because there was nothing to correct. Jesus was and is God. 
And he knows it. The whole Bible is very clear on this point, and it, it's crucial to the gospel. We need to understand this. The identity of Jesus Christ is crucial to the gospel. John wrote this in his book, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Say, who's the Word? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that believers look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13. Here in Colossians, it tells us that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. In other words, all that God is, Jesus is. All of God's attributes reside in Jesus Christ. Now, we know that when he came, when he took on that robe of flesh, that he did voluntarily lay aside some of those attributes for a season. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself of some of those godly attributes, and he set aside some of his divine prerogatives. For example, when he was here, he got hungry, didn't he? He got weary and tired at times. It appears that he laid aside his omnipresence for a season and resided there in in Israel. But do not for a moment think that Jesus ever became less than God. The best way to think about this, I believe, is to see Jesus as being fully God, who then added humanity to his deity. He became the God-man, but he never ceased to be God. Now, Paul writes here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he made the invisible God visible. The word image used here means exact duplicate or copy like a mirror image. And this is echoed by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, where he wrote, He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus, the image of God. Now, you might recall that human beings were created in the image of God as well, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. But humans do not reflect God as clearly and exactly as Jesus Christ does. Jesus was and is an exact duplicate while the image of God in human beings because of sin is distorted, or theologians would say it's marred. Now, just as kind of a funny example of this, let me show you an image of our youth pastor, Brett Starr, okay? So there he is. That's a visual image of the man, Brett Starr. It looks just like him, doesn't it? It's an exact copy of the real Brett. Now, here's another image of Brett. Now, he, he looks like he swallowed a brick and it went to his head. <laughs> this image of Brett obviously is distorted. You can still tell it's him, but it's not a mirror image of him like the first one was. Jesus Christ images God like that first represent, representation. People reflect God like that distorted image. Does that make sense? Jesus is the exact image of God. Now, thankfully, God, through the work of Christ intends to restore his distorted image in all who believe the gospel. All who believe in Jesus. In fact, that's one of the things God's up to in your life right now. Transforming you, morphing you into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul is contending that Jesus is God. The image of God, the exact representation of him, nothing less but he is just getting started. 
Countering the teaching of the Gnostics, he also declares a second thing. In verse 15, he calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. And what he's saying is that Jesus is the highest ranking being in the universe. Jesus is the highest ranking being in the universe. Now, some skeptics read this phrase, firstborn, and they say, aha, see there? Jesus was born. Jesus had a beginning. He was created. He did not always exist like Christians believe. I say, well, first of all, everything else in this passage refutes that notion that Jesus was born. If you are God, then you had no beginning. But in addition, it's a misunderstanding of the word firstborn that's used here. It's the Greek word prototokos. Doesn't that just bless you? <laughs> Say that with me. Prototokos. And it means not first in time, but first in rank. He's the firstborn, the highest ranking being in the universe. In the Bible's usage, firstborn referred to the primary heir, H-E-I-R, the heir, the one who had a rightful claim to the inheritance. Basically what Paul was saying is not that Jesus had a beginning, but rather that all of creation belongs to him by right. He's the ruler of it all. Psalm 89.27 says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So, Paul says Jesus is God. Jesus is the highest ranking being of all creation. Number three, talk about a colossal statement in Colossians about Jesus. Listen to verse 16. For by him all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So number three, all things, everything was created through, by, and for Jesus Christ. Oh my, that verse will reorient your whole life if you let it. It's huge. See, the reason that Paul could say that Jesus has the highest rank in the universe is because he made the universe. He spoke it into existence. But someone might say, well, wait a second. I thought God created the universe. Doesn't the Bible say in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And it certainly does. But it also says this about Jesus in John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You say, well, explain that to me. Well, it's called the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, right? We believe that God is one, per, one God exists in three personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Trinity. And all three persons of the Trinity, the Bible says, were involved in creating the universe. So it is accurate to say that everything that exists was created by Jesus Christ. All things were made by him. Notice, how many things? All. That's a pretty comprehensive word. <laughs> all things. Things in heaven, it says. That would include... All the layers of all the heavens, the atmosphere, the clouds, the sun and sky, the moon and stars, and solar systems and galaxies, and all the vast expanse of space that our minds cannot even comprehend. Jesus made all that. 
and all things on earth. Rivers, oceans, mountains, forests, trees, flowers, insects, animals, mankind, DNA, atoms, subatomic particles, and whatever else might be discovered, both visible and invisible to the naked eye. Notice Paul makes a particular point of noting that all spirit beings were created by Jesus. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Those are terms terms that Paul routinely used to describe the various rankings of spirit beings, of angels and demons. I think he's taking a little jab here at the Gnostics, letting them know that Jesus is not just a low-ranking emanation from God a few notches underneath the angels. He made the angels. That's what he's saying. And then notice that Paul also tells us what it's all for. The purpose and end game of everything that has been created. What does it say? Through him and for him. Listen, you will take a huge step in your spiritual growth and maturity. When you come to, when you're awakened to the fact and accept and embrace the fact that it is all about Jesus Christ. It's not all about you and me. It's about him. All things were created through him and for him, for his glory, for his pleasure, for his fame. That's huge. But there's more. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So we could say it this way, number four, Jesus is the originator and sustainer of all things. Paul's wanting to enlarge our view of Jesus by telling us that Jesus is before all things. Before. That is a time word, isn't it? Some of you got here today before others got here. You know, if you're going to create stuff, you can only do that if you're already there. Jesus is before all things. He was already there. Here's what Jesus claimed for himself in Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's a huge claim, isn't it? You should not ever claim that. (laughs) It's reserved for him. That's why he could look at those Pharisees and say, before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't saying, I'm 2,500 years old. He's saying, I always existed, and I live in the eternal present. But now listen, this is very intriguing. In him, it says, all things hold together. You ever thought about that? Why don't the planets ever go just spinning crazily off their orbital paths? What keeps the earth rotating at just the right speed? What keeps our moon at just the right distance from the earth so that the tides don't come in and wash everybody away? Or think on a smaller scale. Think about atoms for a minute. minute. Atoms, A-T-O-M-S. We all learned about atoms in school, right? Remember that? Atoms are the basic building blocks of all substance. Everything consists of atoms. But do you remember what atoms consist of? Well, there's a nucleus with protons and neutrons. Remember this? 
And then there's electrons spinning around that nucleus. Now, I'm no scientist, but I remember learning that protons have an electrical charge. What is it? A positive charge. Neutrons have no charge, and electrons have a negative charge, right? I was also taught that like charges repel, push apart. I think it was called Coulomb's Law. Is that right? Something like that. See me later. Correct me. Like charges repel. Now, if that's true, if like charges repel, what keeps the nucleus of an atom full of like-charged protons from repelling each other and blowing apart? So I looked it up on the Internet. Here's what Answers.com says. There exists in the nucleus a mysterious force that physicists call the strong nuclear force or nuclear glue, which the modern quantum physics theories attempt to explain. Oh, okay. So there's this nuclear Elmer's glue holding it all together so that the world doesn't come unraveled. And I want to say, but I know the glue maker. In him, all things hold together. And one day he's going to let it go. You can read, read about it in 2 Peter 3, but that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds, present tense, the universe by the word of his power. That means he's doing it all day, every day, on a macro level in the solar system and on a micro level in atoms. That's Jesus Christ holding it all together. I've been waiting for the right opportunity to show you something, and I think it fits here. Some of you have already seen it, maybe a lot of you. But scientists have discovered something that they call laminin. Say that word. Laminin. It's something in your body. What is laminin, you ask? It is the cell adhesion molecule in your body. You hear the word glue in there? Adhesion. As I understand it, laminin is basically the glue that holds all the cells in your body together. It's, laminin is holding your skin cells together right now so that your skin doesn't go sliding off your skeletal frame. So we should all thank God for laminin. It's holding you together right now. Now, if you Google laminin, if you Google that word, you will see some images appear. A structural image of the cell adhesion molecule called laminin looks like that. That's a, that's a diagram of it. But here's what an actual laminin molecule looks like through the lens of a powerful electron microscope. Now, could it be, I'm just postulating here, that God left his fingerprints on this molecule so that one day in the age of technology it would become more apparent even to scientific minds that Jesus Christ is the one holding it all together at a molecular level. Now you can decide for yourself what you believe about that. But for me, I've already made my mind up about it. In Him, all things, all things, all things hold together, including your life. If your life is coming unraveled, 
If you're coming apart at the seams, you need to ask yourself, is Jesus Christ at the center of my life? Because he holds all things together. You know, people have all kinds of images of Jesus in their minds. Some still see Jesus as a sweet little baby lying in a manger. They prefer that image because it's so cute and it's so non-threatening. Then there's the effeminate Jesus. You've seen pictures, you know, feathered hair, prancing through the meadow, slow motion, robes flowing out behind him. There's that vision. Then there's Jesus, my boyfriend, you know, singing love songs to me in my ear. There's the hippie Jesus. There's Jesus, the political agitator, going around crusading for overthrow of the government and so forth. There's Jesus, my homeboy. There's iPod Jesus, just another accessory that you need to add to your life to make your life better. Can you see that each and every one of those is a puny, distorted image of the real Jesus? Jesus is so huge, it's mind-boggling. He holds the universe together in the palm of his hands. And now it's at this point that Paul moves from declaring Jesus to be preeminent over creation. Now he moves to declaring that Jesus is preeminent over his church. Maybe you've heard me say this word preeminent. It means supreme, first, on top, ahead of everything else. That's what preeminent means. In verse 18, our memory verse for this weekend, he writes this, and he is the head of the body. So not only the head over all of the universe, but the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so number five, we could say this, Jesus is the living head of his church. You can get your little memory card out at the table today at the 50 days table like I did. Let's say verse 18 together since that's our memory verse for this weekend. Ready? And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For those of you who are studying for ministry, understand this, your ecclesiology should flow out of your Christology. What? Your doctrine of the church, what you believe about the church, needs to rightfully flow out of your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Because he's the head of the church. I've said this many times around here. I am not the head of the church. I am not the head of this church. Jesus is. Yes, there are elders, there are pastors, ministry leaders, but the founder, the source, the head... The chief authority over this church and over all Christian churches all over the globe is the living head, Jesus Christ. That is the truth. I don't even care for the term senior pastor so much anymore as as it's applied to men who lead churches. The Bible says that Jesus is the chief shepherd, senior pastor. And so people will say, well, who's the senior pastor of New Life? And I usually just say, well, Jesus Christ. He's the senior pastor. He's the head. His people are the body who express his life to each other and to the world. Life and direction flow from the head to the body, right? That's how it works. Authority comes from the head, not the toes, not the liver, not the mouth. 
Jesus is the head. Jesus founded his church. The Bible says he purchased it. He paid for it with his own blood, and so it's precious to him. He owns the church. And because it's his, it's his to build up or tear down or create or destroy as he sees fit. He has the ultimate right to nourish and grow a church or to correct and discipline and prune it as he sees fit. It's his. It belongs to him. Not to me. Not to you. But to Jesus Christ. And he can do all that because it says he is the beginning. And it's a very interesting word that literally means the chief or the pioneer or the source. So he's the chief. He started it. He pioneered the church. And notice it says he's the firstborn from the dead. He's alive. And there's that term prototokos again. Firstborn, it means the highest ranking one to ever be raised from the dead. That's Jesus. Now, other people were raised from the dead, right? Even prior to Jesus, Lazarus, for example. But Lazarus died again. He had a second funeral. Did you know that? He died, he was raised, and then some years later he died again. But Jesus was the first to be raised never to die again. The living Savior. He's alive and he's leading his church. And he's at work in this congregation. Have you noticed that? He's the head. He's leading us. Finally, in this hymn of praise that extols the person of Jesus, Paul reiterates his conviction about who Jesus really is, his true nature. He says, Jesus is not just an emanation flowing out of God like the Gnostics teach. He is God. He's not some kind of phantom, some kind of hybrid phantom who didn't really have a real body. He's not less than deity. He is deity personified. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus was and is nothing less than God himself in a human body. And you need to know that this belief is not held universally by humans all around the world. Do you realize this? But this is word that needs to get out. My hope is in teaching this to you today that you'll pass it on to your children, to co-workers, to family members who need to know who Jesus Christ really is. You don't have to change their mind. But all of us need to get this word out there. He's God. And now, I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to come with me to a sacred place. The Bible declares that the Son of God is so magnificent in the eyes of the Father that the Father has given him the name that is above every name. It's the highest name in the universe. It's the name worthy of all our worship. It's the only name, it says, in which salvation is found, Acts 4.12. And so I'm going to invite you to sit back now and listen to the name. In fact, the many names and titles and ascriptions that are given to the Son of God in the Holy Scriptures. He is called Adam, the last Adam. He is our advocate He is altogether lovely. He is the anointed one. He's the amen and the ancient of days. Jesus is the apostle and the author and finisher of our faith. He was born of a woman. He's the sweet balm of Gilead, the beloved, the begotten, the branch, and the bridegroom. 
Jesus is the bright and morning star. He is bishop. He's the sweet cluster of camphor. He's captain, consolation, chief cornerstone, chosen of God, counselor, covenant, Christ. Jesus is referred to as day spring, day star, deliverer, and the desire of all nations. He said, I am the door. He is elect, Emmanuel, ensign, everlasting father, the faithful witness, the finisher of our faith, first fruits, fountain of life, and thank God, the friend of sinners. Amen. He is the gift of God, glorious Lord, God, guide, governor. He's our help, our health, husband, horn of salvation, head of the church, heir of all things, high priest, hell's dread, heaven's wonder, and the holy, most holy one of God. He is the I am, our inheritance. He is the image of God as we read this morning. He's immortal, invisible. He is Judah, judge, just, Jesus, king, king of glory, king of Israel, king of kings, and king everlasting. He's life, light, and the lily of the valley. He's both the lamb and the lion. He's the living stone, the Lord of glory, the Nazarene, both the offering and the offerer of the eternal sacrifice. He's the offspring of David. He's the Omega, the only begotten of God. He's our Passover, physician, potentate, priest, prince of life, prince of peace. He's our propitiation, which means he's the wrath remover, and I thank God for that. He's our righteousness, rabbi, ransom, refiner. He's our rest, and he's the rock of ages. He's the root of David. Interestingly, he's called both the root and the offspring of David. How can you be the root and the offspring of the same person unless you exist eternally? He's called the root of Jesse, the rose of Sharon, the ruler and the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's savior, seed of a woman, servant of God, shield, sinless sacrifice, son of David, son of God, son of man, stone, sufferer, tabernacle teacher he's our treasure he's the truth he's the way he's the wisdom of god he's the word and jesus is wonderful that is the real jesus christ amen Amen. if you'd like a listing of all of those names and descriptions of jesus we put them on a little card for you you can pick it up at the 50 days table. I agree with A.W. Tozer who said that the most important thing about any of us is what comes to our minds when we think about God. I believe this, that your vision of Jesus Christ is the most determinative thing about you. Listen, if your heart is captivated by a host of other things but is not captivated by Jesus Christ, then your Jesus is too small. He is. You need a bigger vision of Jesus in your life. And so do I. And so I want to close this morning by making a few pastoral comments to you about this because I I do care for you. And I really do want what's best for you. And I want you to keep that in the forefront of your minds for the next three minutes. Because if you think for one moment, that you can compartmentalize your life and give Jesus one of those little compartments and expect him to stay there, your Jesus is too small. If you routinely take Jesus' name in vain, 
or chuckle when other people do, then your Jesus is too small. You're not captivated by him yet. If you're clawing and grasping at your spouse, trying to get them to fill up the emptiness that is in your soul, then I would say you need a bigger Jesus. If suicide is starting to sound like a good option to you, you need a bigger Jesus. If you think Jesus should be content that you've given him a little part of your life, then your Jesus is too small, way too small. If you are shouldering all of your own burdens and not casting them onto the broad-shouldered Son of God, then your Jesus is too small. If you can go through a whole day or even a single hour and not think any thoughts about Jesus Christ, then your Jesus is too small. If you can get all juiced up about sports and talk excitedly with your friends about what happened in the game last night and yet be bored in worship, in church, then your Jesus is too small. If you wrap your whole life, your whole life around the dream of owning a certain kind of car or living in a certain kind of house or taking a certain kind of vacation, if your whole life is wrapped around that, then your Jesus is not captivating enough. He's not the real Jesus. If you think you can tell Jesus what to do and order him around like your servant to do your bidding, that's arrogant for one, and your Jesus is too small. If you envision Jesus down on one knee begging you with tears to please pay him a little bit of attention, that's just gross and your Jesus is too small. He's bigger than that. If you think Jesus just wants you to be a nice person and get along with people and not murder anybody, then your Jesus is too small. If you think having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or getting married is the best thing that could ever happen to you and will fill up the emptiness in your soul... You got another thing coming. And your Jesus is too small. Let him captivate your heart. If you are married and now think that having kids will fill the emptiness in your heart because getting married didn't, your Jesus is too small. And you got another thing coming. If your children have turned out to be prodigals and you're convinced that nothing's ever going to change, then your Jesus is too small. If your children grew up and turned out to be really well-behaved Pharisees who think they're good and they look down on other people who aren't and they don't love Jesus, then their Jesus is too small. And you need to pray that the real Jesus will show up and ambush them and give them a vision of who he really is. If you go ballistic when things don't go your way, your Jesus is too small. If the main thing, the main thing you look forward to in life is food, your Jesus is too small. You're captivated by something really small. If just the thought of going without Facebook for a couple of hours gives you the shakes, you need a bigger Jesus. Seriously. If you long for retirement so you can move to Florida and eat at buffets all day and play euchre and golf all day, if that's the ultimate dream of your life, if everything in your life is heading towards that, you need a bigger Jesus. He's got more for you than that. Your Jesus is too small. He is so much more awesome than that. And if you think that you need to add some of your own efforts to Jesus' work on the cross to make you acceptable to God, your Jesus is way too small. It is finished. He did it all. You cannot contribute 
or improve his work one subatomic particle. It is finished to Telestai. Your Jesus, your vision of Jesus and mine may be too small, but the real Jesus is really, really, really big. One of my favorite lines of all time from Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the great lion to Lucy said, every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. And that is so true. So Lord, I pray, help us to grow. May you become bigger in our eyes. And help us not to be idolaters by creating our own Jesus in our minds making him into our image. But may we instead discover in the pages of the scriptures and in our own experience the true and living Savior who made everything and for whom everything exists. And Lord, even as Christians in the room today, may we repent. Oh, maybe we're not serial killers or rapists or axe murderers. But if we've concocted an image of you in our minds that's too small, we need to repent. Change our minds, Lord. May we be captivated by the real Jesus Christ more than we're captivated by anything else. And I pray it for the good of your people and your great namesake. Amen.